Welcome to another sermon from New Bethel Baptist Church. I hope that this sermon will help you to better know who God is, challenge you to grow in your faith, and compel you to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We are going to be picking back up in Colossians today. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through chapter 2, verses verse 5. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through Colossians chapter 2, verse 5. So last week we took a little uh, detour. We talked about this idea of who's your one, who is one person. You know, Jesus talked about the parable of the lost sheep going and and how the, the shepherd would leave the 99 to go after the one. And so we challenge you to think about who is one person in your life, who is one person that if it would mean the most to you to see come to Christ or to see come back to the fold of God this year and to, to put that person on your heart and to, to chase after them, to leave the 99, to, to go after them this year, to pray for them, to seek after them, to share the gospel with them. So I want, to, I want to continue to challenge you to think about that, about who your one is in the gospel in our town, about this idea of sharing and having gospel conversations. And over to, the, this, to this area by the, the office, you can see a place where you can get a book, bookmark, where you can write your one down, you can tear it off, and we can be praying for your one. But you can also take and write down your one on that bookmark and be praying for them. It has some Bible verses. And you also see this, this uh, bulletin board, where when you have a gospel conversation, you can put a thumbtack there so we can see as a church how often we're sharing the gospel this year. So I just want to make sure I put that in front of you again as we jump back into the book of Colossians. And this is a fantastic book. As we're looking and seeing about Paul's letter to this church that he's never been to, but he's writing to them because they're believers. He's writing to them because he's heard about the love that they have for Christ. And so we're picking up in verse 24, and we're talking, as, as Becky mentioned, about this mystery. And you've seen the title of the sermon is A Marvelous Mystery, because it's marvelous indeed. So we'll get into that as we go. Starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ." For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I've had for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, that we can gather together and look at your word, that we can see what your word says to us, to see what Paul's concern, what his, his efforts were, and what he was saying to these Colossians, that we can learn about what that means and how that affects our lives today. 
God, I pray that as we look at your word, that you would reveal in us, you would convict us, you would show us that, that we would be pierced to the heart about the truth of what we see in Scripture, and that we would repent and believe, that we would repent of whatever is holding us back from following you faithfully, and we would follow you faithfully today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I was looking at this passage, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was looking, and it's, it's beautiful. If you look through Paul's letters, the way that he organizes his thoughts, the way that he presents the things that he's saying are so organized and, and structured. And it wasn't too long ago. I can't remember if it was last week or if it was at a Wednesday night, but I, I talked about how a lot of times Paul will bookend what he's saying. He'll say something, talk a lot about it, and then kind of reaffirm it at the end, right? And that's how you, how you can see his thoughts. Now, in this passage, he does this thing where he says a statement, talks about something. It, it, it's, it's kind of beautiful. So he talks about his suffering and then about the stewardship he's been given, which leads into this ministry that leads back into his stewardship that he's been given. And so then that paragraph's done. That's where chapter two starts. Then he talks about his suffering again and about the stewardship he's been given, which leads back into that mystery into the stewardship he's been given. And so he has this, this method of where he goes through and talks about things, reinforces everything that he's saying. So we're going to look at that today, but we're going to start a little differently than he started. We're going to look first at this mystery, a mystery revealed, because everything that Paul is talking about centers around this mystery that he talks about in this passage. He talks about this mystery uh, that was we see it first in verse 26, right in the middle, right? The mystery hidden for ages and, and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then later we see in, in verse 2, to reach all the riches of understanding, of uh, all riches of full assurance and of understanding and the knowledge of, of God's mystery, which is Christ. So we see this mystery being central to what he's talking about. So we're going to start there. What is this mystery that he's talking about? Right, this, this word that he uses is mysterion. And he's, it's primarily found in Paul's letters. It's found elsewhere, but it's primarily found in Paul's letters. It invokes this idea of a divine secret because we're talking about God's mystery or something that was once hidden when we, think, when we think about a mystery, when we talk about a mystery in our world, we think about something that doesn't quite make sense, something that's not clear. You think about books that you may have read or, or your children may have read, like, the, like Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys. They were all about solving mysteries. What's that mean? Well, how did this happen? How did this certain event take place? So they go and they look and they find things that were hidden and expose them. So the mystery is solved. Paul makes it clear there are no questions about the, what the mystery he's talking about is. The mystery of God is salvation by grace through faith in Christ for all who believe. This mystery is salvation by grace through faith in Christ for all who believe. It's the gospel. The gospel is the mystery of God. That, that God would take sinners and save them. If you remember last week, uh, we talked about this idea of, of the Pharisees coming and being upset, of, of them being upset. Why? Because Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. Because this mystery, as we've seen, has been hidden for generation and ages before. So these Pharisees are walking in the way of these, this generation of which God's mystery was hidden. What does it mean? It was hidden. People thought something was happening. They thought they knew. They didn't realize there was a mystery. 
They didn't realize something else was taking place. So some, they thought something was happening, but something different was actually happening. So the Pharisees thought they were righteous. They thought that they were the ones who were inheriting God's promises. They thought they were the ones that would inherit because of their righteousness eternal life with God. They thought the promise that was given to Abraham, their fathers, was for them because of their righteousness when really they were just religious hypocrites. And they thought that these sinners and tax collectors that Jesus entertained had no part in that promise because of their lives. You see, the Jewish people also, also seen in the Pharisees thought that the Messiah was coming as a conquering king. And so when they were interested in Jesus, they were expecting and thinking. If you look at some of the parts of, of the early parts of the gospel, Jesus withdrew himself, not because he was being persecuted, but because the people were going to take him and try to make him king. They wanted to exalt him and, and make him a conquering king to overthrow this Roman government, to overthrow the oppression they felt. They thought that's what the Messiah would be. They didn't realize at first he was going to come as a suffering servant. The mystery is what Christ was. The mystery is what Christ did. That, that people, rather than being justified through their works, as they thought, and as many religions in the world still teach, if you ask most people how you get to heaven, almost the majority, if they even believe in heaven, are going to say, it's by your good works. There was a poll that was done by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University found that 48% of U.S. adults affirm the statement that a person is gener- who is generally good or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven. One in three Americans, 33%, say that they consider themselves to be a Christian and affirm the statement that when you die, you will go to heaven only because you've confessed your sins and have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And additionally, 63% of adults believe having faith matters more than which faith you have. So very clearly, in a Christian nation that has grown up hearing the gospel, where the predominant religion, at least throughout the past centuries, has been Christianity, half of Americans, half, half of the people in our nation believe If you live a good life, if you're a good person, you will earn a spot in heaven. That's what the Jewish people believed. That if you kept the law, if you followed God, you would earn a place. You kept the law, you earn a place in heaven. That's what the the most of the religions around the world teach. That if you keep this part of the faith, if you will follow these rules, if you will adhere to these things, and that's what most non-believers think Christianity is. I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to have to follow a bunch of rules. I don't, want to, I don't think I can do those things. The mystery of God is that God would take people who are sinners, the ones that try to follow the law but still break it because all people are guilty of sin, the people who have never tried to follow the law, the sinners, the tax collectors, the, the, the scum of the earth as they would have been viewed by the Pharisees and, and often are viewed by people today. God takes all of those people in the same way and will save them through Jesus Christ. The mystery was that not just are the descendants of Abraham included in this promise, but as Paul's writing to this church, the Colossians, that the Gentiles are included in this promise, that they can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's so wonderfully summed up in Ephesians 2, 1-10. 
We see where verses 1 through 4 make it clear that all people are sinful following the ways of this world. They are, by nature, children of wrath. And here's the mystery. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that He has for us, made us alive with Him in Christ Jesus. That even though we're dead in our sin, through Christ, God has made us alive in Christ Jesus. That is the mystery of God. It doesn't make sense. I want you to imagine for a moment, and this has probably happened to you before because the world just seems to be too small sometimes. You go on vacation somewhere obscure, some real little town out of nowhere. You go to the beach, right? You're walking into a restaurant and you see somebody you know. What are you doing here? doesn't make sense, does it? doesn't make sense. You see somebody. You're thousands of miles from home. You see some. How do I? Why are, why are you here? I want you to understand that the fact that any of us will stand in heaven with God is, this, is far beyond a greater mystery than that. You might see somebody in heaven. You might be like, what are you doing here? But the better question we should be asking is, what am I doing here? I'm a sinner. I don't deserve any of this, but the mystery in God is that because He had grace upon us, because He loved us, He made a way for us to be forgiven in Christ. And this is the mystery that all that this is centered around. What God has done in Christ for our benefit because of His love for us. That in Christ we can be saved. And this is a mystery that is worth suffering for. It's a mystery that's worth suffering for. This idea of Paul rejoicing in his sufferings. That's how he starts it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. We see in, verse, in chapter 2, that's what I'm saying. He goes back into it. Now I want to know how great a struggle I've had for you, for those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face. He's suffering and he's struggling. Why? Because this mystery is so important that it's worth suffering for. It's worth enduring hardship. Right now as he writes as he is in prison. Now, there are two questions I think that are important that if you read this, that you might initially, that I initially, when I read this, had. How is Paul suffering for the sake of the Colossians? Remember, Paul has not met the Colossians. And also, what does it mean when he says, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body? One thing we can be certain, Paul is not at all saying or implying that Christ's sacrifice was lacking. The suffering and the death that Christ endured on the cross, the, the, the payment he gave for our debt was final and complete. And Paul makes that very clear in other places, so we can't assume that's what he's meaning. So what is he meaning? From a commentary, we, uh, we see this. What is lacking then, needing to be filled up, are the tribulations that are inevitable and necessary as God's kingdom faces the opposition of the dominion of darkness. As members of Christ's own body, his people participate in the sufferings of Christ himself. So Paul is explaining that what he is doing benefits the body because suffering must occur. There will be suffering in the body of Christ. There's not been a time since the church began where there has not been some sort of persecution or suffering for the cause of Christ. Right now, across the world, there are Christians that if they are found out to be Christians, if they are found out to be meeting and worshiping, they can be killed for that. And right now, Paul is saying to them, you know what? I'm in prison, but I'm okay with that because I know that it is for your benefit because the gospel, this mystery has reached you. I will 
suffer and I would suffer again. And we know that Paul in his life suffered. Nearly put to death many times to, to, to just continue doing what? Go and preach some more. Right? We think about the words that, that Peter and John had when they stood before the Sanhedrin. They were going to let them go and they said, but we charge you not to teach in the name of Jesus. And what do they say? Whether it's right to listen to you or God, you must decide. But as for me, I can only, I can only but speak about the things I've seen and heard. And so Paul, when he's encountered this mystery says, you know what? If it means that you get to hear about what Christ has done for you and you believe, I'll suffer. If it means that suffer mu- someone must suffer on behalf of the body of Christ, I'll be glad to do it because it's worth it. It's worth it. Suff- some Christians must suffer, and gl- Paul is glad to be bearing that burden on behalf of the, the Colossians and on behalf of other Christians as he is a part of the body of Christ. So as we think about his example, I want to challenge you to think about how do you approach suffering in your life? Do we have the same attitude of Paul that we're willing to gladly suffer for the cause of Christ? Also, consider what he says. Would you be willing to suffer for the sake of your fellow Christians? To bear that burden for them? But as we think about this, I want you to, to, it's very important that you understand and you measure as you look about suffering, you think about suffering in your life, that you identify the cause of the suffering in your life. I think many times we attribute things to suffering for Christ or the suffering that this might be talking about that really aren't the case. You know, there's an internet meme or kind of a funny picture that's gone around that I've seen several times, and it gets put with different things in it. But you've heard the idea, right, that God gives his toughest battles to his toughest soldiers, right? That if you're suffering, right, Paul's an example that he's suffering so greatly, but he's also willing and able to endure it. There's kind of been this, and really it's often seen in, in first century or 21st century Christians. It's, it's, a, it's a joke saying, you know, God, why do you give me your toughest battles? And it's kind of God looking back at him saying, all you have to do is fold your laundry, that's not, that's not my toughest battle. Sometimes we think the suffering we're facing, we think the persecution that we might be enduring, the things that we face in our life, man, they're just so great and so insurmountable, but really they're not. And sometimes we think about suffering in our life and we have to realize that self-inflicted suffering is not included in this. When you do something that's really foolish and you incur pain because of that, that's not God punishing you. That's not, that's not suffering on behalf of Christ. Right? When you walk around your bed in the morning, as I'm sure we've all done, and your toe just happens to hit the edge of that bed, you're not suffering on behalf of Christ. That's just things that happen in the world. What's Paul talking about? I am glad to be persecuted for, the cake, for this mystery, for the gospel. I rejoice in that suffering. The fact that I'm in prison because I preach the gospel. And too often, that's the suffering that we are most likely to avoid. Because it's really easy to avoid. Really, the extent of the suffering that we face, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it's not suffering to some extent. Social isolation, people looking at us funny, people not wanting to, not, it hurting our relationships. If we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim this mystery, you might be labeled certain ways, you might have people look at you funny, you might have some social repercussions, but as of right now, we're not going to be imprisoned. 
it will cost you. And the gospel is costly. Jesus makes that clear. It's clear all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Bible, that following God is costly. It requires sacrifice. But right now, for us, the sacrifice really isn't all that great. But whatever sacrifice we must make, whatever suffering we must endure, we should do it gladly. Paul is specifically rejoicing because of the persecution of his faith. And so we should be willing to rejoice in any suffering we face because of serving Christ. Because we know that our suffering is glorifying and honoring to God. And we know that our suffering helps build up the body. And here's one of the things that I think that is really a lot of times God makes things mysterious in the way that He saves us. But the other mysterious thing is what typically happens when there's persecution. You think about people, if there was a a protest or a riot for whatever reason, and people come against them, uh, there's an anti-riot force that comes out. What happens? They disperse. It breaks it up. Time and time again, when people are persecuted for the gospel, do you know what it does? It multiplies. It multiplies in effectiveness. Because when you and I hear about people across the world suffering, dying for the faith, I don't know about you, but that doesn't produce fear within me. It it makes me want to be a little more like them. To have such boldness, to have such confidence in this mystery, this gospel I've believed in, that I would be willing to die for my faith. It makes me think about my suffering that I might endure. It makes me think about those, those looks people might have, the, the things they might say to me, the way they might label me. It makes me think, you know what? that really doesn't matter all that much. You've no doubt heard the stories of people who, when, when their family members go, and, and they are, there's one particular tribe, and I, I can't remember all of the details of it, but they go to evangelize in an island of an unreached people group, and they're killed. Years later, it's the widows and the children of those men that go back and reach those lost people. You see, their suffering, their martyrdom for Christ didn't scare off their family. It emboldened them. Because this is something worth suffering for. It's something worth dying for. Because it means that other people can hear the good news of Jesus. So when we suffer, we are an encouragement to believers. We're also a witness to non-believers. That's how people will know that we believe what we say when we're willing to suffer for it. If you're willing to suffer in whatever way for what you believe, it makes it clear to yourself and to others that you truly believe it. We also see from Paul This is a mystery worth working for. It's a mystery worth working for. He talks in the beginning about this stewardship of which I became, this is verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So what is this stewardship that he's been given? A stewardship is something you've been entrusted with. If you are a steward, you've been entrusted with something to take care of it, to, to make sure that it happens the way it's supposed to happen. So Through this passage, through a variety of places, he makes clear all of the various parts of his stewardship. The main thing is to make the Word of God fully known. What is that word? The mystery of God. His stewardship is to make it fully known. How does he do that? He proclaims Christ. 
to everyone. He teach it, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom for the ultimate goal, presenting everyone mature in Christ. And he goes on in other places to say that, that part of his stewardship is to make sure that hearts might be encouraged, that they would reach the, they would reach the reaches of full assurance of understanding, be able to withstand plausible arguments, to be firm in the faith. Again, ultimately, to proclaim Christ, right? We see this. This is the fulfillment of the Great Commission, to go make disciples, proclaiming the gospel, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is what he's doing, proclaiming, warning everyone about the truth of the gospel, this mystery of God, and presenting them mature in the faith, able to stand firm, able to have understanding and knowledge. A mature believer is one who has continually progressed in their relationship with God and looks more and more like Christ every single day. So what are some of the marks of a mature believer? There are a couple things that as I was looking through this, throughout various places of the Bible, including this passage, that, that mark what a mature believer is. Because that's what he's saying his goal is, is to present everyone as, a, as fully mature believers. The first thing is faith. To be a mature believer, you have to have faith. Why is that? Well, that's how you come into salvation, come into relationship with God. You have to have faith, possessing hearts that trust the Lord, right? Being encouraged. But it doesn't stop there. It's not this idea of faith being a a, a simple one-time thing, but it's an ongoing, growing faith. A mature Christian has great faith in the Lord and His promises. It is an increased trust in who He is and what He said He'll do having this full assurance, this full confidence in who God is. You have faith in the Lord. A mature believer also possesses knowledge. They possess knowledge. They are one who has been taught and learned the truth of God. We we can't only have faith. We can't only have knowledge. But knowledge is important. A mature Christian has advanced in their knowledge of the Lord. How do we see this? Because we know, as he says, that they are able to withstand plausible arguments. This doesn't say foolish arguments. It says plausible arguments. Paul's saying that even at this time, there were people that would come to you and, and say things that are going to make you scratch your head a little bit. And as you go and you evangelize, you share the gospel, as you just encounter the world, there are people that come and say, you know, you're really kind of foolish if you believe in Christ. It doesn't make any sense. And here's why. And I don't know about you, but there's been many times where you scratch your head for a moment. But through knowledge of who God is, through faith in Him, you're able to withstand plausible arguments. So a mature Christian has faith. They have advanced in knowledge. They've advanced in righteousness. A mature Christian is one that has righteousness. A mature Christian is a Christian that lives a life that is marked by righteousness. Right? We talked about this. The mystery is that God has declared us righteous in Jesus Christ. But through the rest of our life, He makes us righteous through the process of sanctification. And so a mature Christian is a person whose life is marked with righteousness. You should see places in their life the sin that they were saved from should not be present. Not that they're sinless, but that they have progressed in righteousness as they walk with God. A mature Christian is also one who evangelizes. A mature Christian will evangelize, warning everyone, teaching everyone. We have, if we have believed in the promise of God, if we believed in this mystery, 
We've also believed it is for everyone who would believe. We believe that there are people all around us every single day who are destined because of their sinfulness to spend eternity separated from God because of their own sinfulness. And so we should be people who are burdened by that and will evangelize. A mature Christian is engaged in sharing the gospel, making this mystery plain and evident to anyone they can. And a mature Christian is also one who's engaged in discipleship. Who's engaged in discipleship. A mature Christian is engaged in making disciples. Not just warning people, but teaching them, just as Paul was, to become fully mature. A mature Christian makes other mature Christians. And so when when you hear about these things, faith, knowledge, righteousness, evangelism, discipleship, the reality is that each and every one of us have things, spiritual gifts, have inclinations toward these things. There are people that seem to have unshakable faith, that no matter what comes their way, their faith in God will not be shaken. There There are people who possess tremendous knowledge, that they can read Scripture and memorize it and know the truths about God. There are people who seem to just live pure lives. People who are, who are zealous in sharing the gospel. People who are really good at bringing people along with them and teaching them to follow God. But here's the thing. It's not one, two, three, or, or the other. A mature Christian possesses all of these things. And so in our life, our goal is to find where we are weak and to seek to grow in those things. We can't leave these things to other people. We can't think that, well, because I have faith, it doesn't matter if I know very much about God. It's all right that you don't know much about God. It's not okay to stay there. You might think, well, I try to invest in discipleship of the church and to to help other believers, so it's not really that important that I share my faith to other people. A mature Christian can't think that way. And so Paul's goal is to present people as fully mature Christians, and so we should seek to become fully mature Christians, engaged in these things. But I want you to remember that Paul said this is his stewardship that's been given to him. This is his task, and and I believe it is our task, but his specific task is to especially minister to the Gentiles. Right? He talks about he's been made a minister to the Gentiles, to go and to teach and make believers of the Gentiles. We have all been given things that we should steward on God's behalf, that He has entrusted us with. Everything that we have is a gift from God. Everything that we possess, every good thing in our life is a gift from God. So I want to challenge you to think about, as we think about our lives, what has God entrusted us with that we need to take care of, that we need to be good stewards of? You know, it's sometimes easy to look at people like Paul and say, well, God gave him a very clear and specific stewardship of a big ministry. And and one day if God gives me that, then I'll be faithful in it. We cannot assume that God does not care about the small things. Everything that He's given us, we should seek to be faithful in. I remember back when I first realized in a very clear and convicting way how important our stewardship is. It was right when I graduated from high school and I go into college and I start to realize how few people that I graduated with I saw anymore. It went from seeing about 150 people, you know, whether in the hallways and classes together at lunchtime, football games, whatever it might have been, I saw all these people 
that God had entrusted me with this opportunity to share my faith with them, and I, and I did try at times, but when I graduated, it goes down to five, ten people you see. And so for a period of, depending on how you look at it, 12 years in school or four years in high school, God had given me a stewardship of these people that I walked the halls with. And I was convicted that I wasn't faithful enough in that. I was convicted there were these people that I didn't see anymore, that I didn't have a witness to anymore. I wasn't able to talk with them anymore. I wasn't able to share my faith with them anymore in the same way I was before. So I wasn't faithful. because I, I was already called to ministry at that point. I kept thinking, man, when, when God gives me the ability to be a pastor, to lead, then I can, I, can be like, I can try to be faithful in what He's given me. But looking back, I realized I should have been more faithful in the small things. So you may not be like Paul and have something specifically identifiable like a ministry in your life. But you, when you have been entrusted with anything, you're to care for it. You think about the parable of the talents. The one given five, one given two, one given one. The ones that had five and two talents went and they were able to take care of them and invest and to grow what they'd been trusted and trusted with. But the one with one buried it and brought back the one. And he was condemned for not being a good steward. I want you to think about a good example. I think a good example of how... Um, how that would look in maybe today's society. If you were to have a child and you were to entrust someone to be a babysitter and you found out that every single day they came over, they would put your child in their room, lock the door, only go in maybe if they had to eat and have a diaper change, but they left them alone, locked them in the room. What do we call that? Child abuse. That is not taking care of what you've been entrusted with. People go to jail for that. Neglect. And so when we think about what God has given us, we cannot neglect them simply because there's no punishment for it. What has God given you? Think about your job. You have a ministry, a mission field wherever you work. Think about your marriage, your family, your friendships, your time, your money. Anything you have is a gift given to you, entrusted to you from God to use to His glory, to be cared for for His glory. And so if you have a job, you're supposed to work it as if you're working for the Lord and not for men. If you work with people who are lost, you are called in whatever way you can to try to lead them to the truth found in Jesus Christ. If you are married... You are called to love your spouse and to care for them, to nurture them, to nurture their relationship with God as you honor them and honor God in the way that you are married to them. In your family, your children, your cousins, your whoever you may be related to, you have a ministry and a mission to care for them, to nurture them, to grow them and lead them to the Lord. You have been given time that should be used to glorify and honor the Lord. Your money is not to be hoarded and used and spent selfishly, but to be used to glorify and honor God and to bless others. And then you get specific. If you're a Sunday school teacher, when people walk into your room, you are teaching them the knowledge of who God is. You are an example to them. You are a leader in their life. 
That's why at one point in the Bible it says not many should become teachers because they'll be held to a higher standard because you've been given a stewardship entrusted to care for their souls on behalf of God. Whatever roles you play in your life, you don't play for yourself or for people. You play them for God. You should honor God in them. And the convicting thing is if there's any areas or roles in your life that you play or anything you do that doesn't honor God, it can't be there. You can't have things in your life that, oh, that's just my fun thing I do on the side. You know, I, I know that it's, you know, I know that God's blessed me with lots of money, but I just like to go and gamble a lot of it, and it doesn't really matter if I lose it, it's my fun money. It's not good stewardship. Well, you know, I have a lot of friends, but I don't, those, are my, those are my work friends. Those are my going out on the weekends having fun friends. I don't have to tell them about God. They won't like me. as God has entrusted you with those relationships. That's why we're doing this idea of the gospel in our town, these gospel conversations, the who is your one? Who is one person that has been placed in your life that God has entrusted you with that you feel burdened to share the gospel with? That is the stewardship God has given to you. That is your ministry. You can't think it's someone else's job. And when we all will take this stewardship, when we will all seek to grow and be mature in Christ, God will bless that work. God blesses those things. And so here's how it all ties together. Because there has been a wonderful mystery that has been revealed to us, this truth that even though we are sinful and deserving of punishment, this wonderful mystery in God that God has given this ability to be saved from our sins because of what Jesus has done for us. This is the mystery. This is the gospel. And because of that, it's so great that Paul was rejoicing in his sufferings because it was an honor to suffer because of that gospel. And it was also something that, that was so great that Paul was willing to give his life for. It changed the whole course of his life to where he's going one way, persecuting the church, likely getting wealthy off of that pursuit, likely gaining acclaim of people in that pursuit, changing it all up to make sure that he can lead people to know about what he's known in Christ, to know about this salvation that's offered in Christ, to take care of what God has given him in Christ. And so today... The primary thing is, have you understood this marvelous mystery? Have you understood that you are a sinner? Understand that. I want you to understand every single one of us is a sinner that deserves punishment. But God, being rich in mercy, made a way that we could be made alive with Him in Christ Jesus. By grace, something we, a, a good thing given to us that we don't deserve, salvation by faith, for all who believe in Christ. Do you know that mystery this morning? Has that mystery been revealed to you, right? Where you once were blind, but now you see, you see the, the truth of what God has done for you. Is that, has that been done in your life? Has it been made clear to you? Because if it ha hasn't, you need to take that first step into salvation, into relationship with God and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm pierced to the heart and I want to repent and believe in who Jesus is be saved. If you have been saved, that mystery that you believed in, that hope that you have, should motivate you to endure any trial that you face on behalf of that mystery with joy. Because it's worth it. 
And that mystery should also motivate you to take care of what God has given you, to work on behalf of God and what God has stewarded you with, has given you and trusted to you. And so this morning, as we come to this time of invitation, I want to invite all of us to think about what God has given us, to think how we can be more faithful and caring for those things in our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to You and I just rejoice at this marvelous mystery that You've given to us. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That there's not a person too far gone to be saved by You. And God, I pray that if there are any in here who do not know You, that they would come to saving faith coming into that relationship with you today, that they would partake in this mystery that's available to all who believe. And Father, I pray that you would help convict each and every one of us in our lives how we should suffer for you and rejoice in suffering for you and how we should work on behalf of you. How we can approach these things in our lives and and, and we can look at them and and realize and give them to you and and know they belong to you and that that we would treat them like they do like they belong to you, that we would honor you in the way we do everything in our lives because of the stewardship that you've given to us. Lord, I pray that during this time you would convict each of us in in whatever way you call us to, and that we would be faithful to obey you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope this sermon has been a blessing to you today. If you have any questions about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you through our church Facebook page, email, or by calling the church office.